Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I am in Montreal, Canada, doing a podcast up here all week. I started off with Ken Dalterman, who uh, the festival so graciously brought me up for. And it's a very odd thing being here on the other side. It's very strange because, you know, and also very odd because I'm sitting across from a, a, a man, Jim Norton, who I... I have so much respect for. I'm actually being honest here, you know, I'm... I'm I'm not an anxious person. I don't have any uh, fear of anything at all. And as I sit across from Jim, it's very odd because I don't really interview a lot of people who are on camera for this particular show. But I've known Jim probably close to his whole career. Being here at the festival, it's kind of odd because I, I my whole goal with this festival all through my career was fight hard through every single no you got from the festival and get your artists here anything you can do to get your artists here and Jim Norton was a client of myself and my company and also a manager named Maureen Taron. and the thing about a manager is that your job is very, very simple, believe it or not. It's to take the artist's laundry list of things they want to do in their life and check off each one until the list is completed and then start a new fucking list. And Jim's list early on, 
from my recollection, was a very small list because Jim, all Jim ever wanted was to be one of the best comedians ever. All he wanted to do was just do comedy and hopefully get to the stage where people said, holy shit, that guy is one of the best comedians out there. And I'm going to tell this story, but I'm getting a little emotional because I went to see Don Rickles last night and I met Don Rickles for the first time. And I saw you and him. Now, you don't do the kind of comedy that Don Rickles does. But as I saw him at 88 years old, I saw Jim Norton and I realized that he has the drive, the work ethic, and the content that 40 years from now, 50 years from now, that you'll be up on a stage like that, sitting on a stool by a piano, and having audiences revere you and stand and realize that they're watching one of the greatest comedians of all time. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Um, I went and saw Rickles the other night, too. And uh, not last night, but two nights ago. And I'd done Leno with him once. I did a segment, and he was the guest. And after I came off, this is about four years ago, he's like, good job, very funny. And then when I went and saw him the other night, I got backstage, uh, you know, because Tom Papa wanted to leave. I was like, stupid, get a picture with him. So uh, I walked backstage, and he remembered me. He was like, where did I see you backstage? Where they were saying, this kid does you better than you. Where did I see you? And I'm like, it was a Tonight Show. So it was kind of an honor to have him remember me at all and get a chance to talk to him. Yeah, it just... And so as I tell the story about you, I felt like I had a good relationship with the Montreal Just for Last Festival. They always put people that I had on, except for one year, which is well-documented, where I brought many people up here on my own. And every single year, you would get a showcase for the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And every single year, in my opinion, you had the best material, the most amazing originalness about you, and the best set of the night. Every fucking year, wherever they were, you would kill. And every year I'd get the call, uh, Jim's not ready. You know, as a manager, you don't represent just one person unless you're Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> <laughs> so you're getting people into the festival and you're proud of the work you've done to get people into the festival. And you don't really understand what the artist is going through, who's worked all year long on their stand-up at the hope of getting to the Montreal Just for Last Festival because that was one of the big boxes on Jim Norton's bucket list. There were a few different things on his boxes, if I remember correctly. One was the Montreal Just for Last Festival. 
One was Letterman, and one was to be a headliner in comedy clubs across the country. And so when you're in the heart of things and you're working hard at being a stand-up, you're working towards the goal of being a headliner. You're working towards the goal of getting Letterman. But the first step of validation for a comedian before the television show, before headlining, is to get into the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And every single year, I felt like a failure as a manager. Because how could I get these other people in who shall remain nameless, some of them that got in, that couldn't hold your jock strap. And I couldn't, I prided myself on turning no's into yeses. And I never, while I was representing you, could turn that no into a yes. Now, later on, a few years later, two years, five years later, after we stopped working together, thank goodness that they finally realized that you are who you are. But back then, it was disappointing to me. And I remember one of the last things that happened when I was representing you. You had done some, I believe, some guest appearances on the Open Anthony show. And many, many comedians had done some guest appearances on the opening Anthony show could be hundreds. But you called me one day and, uh, you said, I think these guys, uh, want to bring me on. And, um, I thought to myself as I went home that night, because I had no knowledge of radio, no experience at radio, never done a radio deal, and never been involved in anything like that. Since then, obviously, I've done many. But I thought to myself when I went home and before I put my head on the pillow, I thought to myself, God, you know, this guy, hundreds of people, at least a hundred comedians have gone through that show. And they want Jim. He did it. He worked hard. Every time the spotlight was shined on him and the mic was on, he made sure that he was the best representation of himself. And he knew that the competition was fierce. And he might not have necessarily thought to himself, hey, I'm doing this to get a regular gig on this show. But the great work made people notice you. And the call came into you to do it. And I remember you telling me, you said, Barry, uh, it's a great opportunity. They only, they only want to offer me like, you know, 500 to 1,000 bucks. Yeah, it's 50 grand a year. You know, it's, it's, it's not a lot of money. And it was one of the few times in my life where, and this was right before we stopped working together, I was 100% on the same page because normally I would be the guy who would say, listen, you got to do this even though it's like $6 in a bucket of chicken. Because when you're getting up at 4.30 in the morning and doing something like that, it's a different muscle. And you become a radio guy if you don't be careful. 
and you lose the a little bit of yourself you lose a little bit about what you're going for and your priorities change because you're focusing so much on this thing that's the different muscle but what's great about you is that and every artist who's listening to this should know this Jim Norton would have taken that gig for $50. Jim Norton would have paid them money to do that first year because he knew how important it was to have his voice be heard by more people because the frightening and disappointing thing about the Montreal Just for Laughs auditions were there was one person in a room with a notepad deciding on his future. One person hearing his voice and reporting back to their people. But Jim knew if he could get his voice in front of millions of people that he wouldn't be denied. And so the advice of this cold open is if ever you have any chance in whatever profession you're doing, to be involved in something where your talents can be seen by great people or the masses. It doesn't matter what the money is. It doesn't matter anything about the money. Respect outlasts cash. If you do the great work and you get the opportunity, you'll make more money than you've ever made in your life. And you'll really, really be happy that you did because it'll change your life forever. Here we go in three, two. They ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just... I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A., and he said, you know, I got to meet you. So I met the guy, and... uh I sat down and he told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. So I was a little bit intrigued, so I went online and I did some research. And I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a you know medium-large company, whatever, and you have a 1,000 checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or $135K a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com, schedule a live demo on their system, speak to Michael Purcell, see how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz. I am more than excited than you can ever know. Of course, sitting across from my guest today, he's the kind of guy that... You know, when you're around him, you could never tell if he's really that excited. You could never tell if he's really, really pumped about doing anything because he always has his game face on. But then once he gets into something, it's like he transforms in all these different directions. And that's one of the things I always loved about him because he was like a really, really serious about his craft and serious about everything. And people think, oh, are comedians always on? Are they always hanging around making jokes? Yeah, maybe if you're Kevin Meany. For the most part, comics are like you. They they want to win at life, and they want to win at business, and their mind is always turning of how they can be the best they can be. So let me tell you a little bit about Jim Norton. Jim has emerged as one of the most versatile and unique voices in comedy. He is a two-time New York Times best-selling author and sells out theaters nationwide as a respected stand-up comedian. He was a regular contributor to The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and guest on The Late Show with David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel Live, and a host of other other shows like Chelsea Lately and Inside Amy Schumer and Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. On the radio, Jim is on a radio show that shall remain nameless because I don't know what the radio show is now, but there is no name for it right now, but it was the Opie and Anthony show, and he does a nightly music show obsessed on Ozzy's Boneyard and hosts his own weekly advice show, The Jim Norton Show, where people call in for guidance on sex, relationships, addiction, and comedy. 
He's also appeared as an actor on numerous TV series and feature films. And as I tell him often, I believe he's as great an actor as he is a stand-up comedian. Thank you. He's done three-hour specials, which is incredible. Most people uh, don't even do one. His latest special premiered, I believe, in 2013 called American Degenerate and premiered on Epics and then on Netflix. His second hour special, Please Be Offended, premiered on Epics in 2012 and was the highest rated comedy special premiere in that network's history. The album he did of Please Be Offended was released in 2013 and was listed as one of the top 10 comedy albums of that year by LaughSpin.com and Monster Rain. Jim's first hour special premiered on HBO in 2007. Other notable things I should tell you about Jim. In December of 2012, he released his fourth stand-up comedy album, No Baby For You. His third album, Despicable, was released in 2011 and debuted at number two on the Billboard comedy charts. Unbelievable. His other two comedy albums, Yellow Discipline... (laughs) And Trinkets I Own, made from Gorilla Hands, who were released in 2002 and 2003, respectively. He is the creator of the unbelievably successful anti-social comedy tour franchise, which takes gyms and other headliners across the country for stand-up shows. So please welcome, if you will, I am so happy to have you here, Jim Norton. Thank you. Thanks. It's uncomfortable hearing my bio, right? It's really weird. Like, well, I can never hear things about me listed. I just get really embarrassed. I don't watch things I do. You know, I edit when I have to edit, but then like to watch myself on Louie or Amy, I've never seen. What's the one thing that you have watched in your career that doesn't make you uncomfortable? Um, a lot of my stand-up I can watch other than the physical. Like I like I look at myself, my blanking or Certain things I do physically irritate me. And I shot a show recently for Vice.com, a talk show. And I went over, we had four episodes shot, and I want to do more of them. And watching that recently, I interviewed Mike Tyson and Dana White in the first episode. And that was something I felt really good about. Like watching this monologue and watching the interview I did with these guys, I was like really happy with how it came out. Like it was one of those things I watched over and over again. um, And I was like, this is what I wanted. Now, you interview Mike Tyson, okay? When's the last time you got nervous about anything? I'm talking about the kind of nervous where you notice that you're sweating a little bit more. You have that feeling in your stomach like, Jesus, uh, you know, what's going to happen here? I think, I mean, you always, you get nervous when you do any type of a show. There's always a little bit of jitters. You'd be a moron if you didn't have jitters. You know, Carson said he got nervous. Every night he came out, there was something. But the last time I was petrified was um, I had gotten a call to interview Ozzy Osbourne for this uh, record release he was doing a couple years ago, maybe four years ago. And they said, it's just going to be you and Ozzy for an hour. And uh, we're going to cut it up and put it on radio stations and it will help him promote. And he's my idol. So it was, it was very frightening to know that I was going to have one hour with Ozzy, like, what am I going to talk about for an hour? So I prepared, I had six pages of notes and I just kind of went into it prepared. And when we sat down, we just started talking about recovery and addiction. And, um, we did the hour very comfortably, but that was the last, I was almost so afraid that it went full circle and became comfortable. It was, you know, it was, it was such a scary thing that, um, you know, I, I just stopped being afraid because it was so much at stake for me. 
Do you think he felt your fear? No, I mean, he's a perceptive guy, but I think he's used to people having a certain feeling around him because of who he is. I think on that level, it's not surprising to you when people are a little not themselves, you know? So, no, I don't, I don't think that he he sensed it. I've interviewed him a lot, but this was just, you know, one hour alone, um, and I can cover pretty well. You know, you never let the audience know when you're scared, so I cover fairly well. And so what I like to do on these podcasts is I like to go way, way back, way back. So tell me about your family life and where you grew up and what was the first thing that happened that made you have any thought of going into show business? Like where was your journey up until that point? You know, I was, uh, I'm from central New Jersey, just, uh, in, I think Edison was where it was when I first started getting laughs, you know, I was a weird kid. But but when you say first getting laughs, you mean in the schoolyard? Oh, yeah, from friends. And I don't remember where it started. You know, I was very sexual when I was a kid. So most of my memories is being from childhood are sexual. Now, when you say sexual being as a kid, tell me how old you are and what do you mean you were sexual? I'm 46 now. Back then, I was probably, it was before fourth grade. It was probably first, second, third grade. Um, just me and my, and I told the story on HBO. I mean, just me and my little buddies blowing each other or me and, uh, you know, the, the little girl next door, just, you know, kissing her ass cheeks and, you know, smelling and, you know, things like that. But when you were like, how old? I would say most of that was second and third grade. If you were alone without a group of friends. Okay. Let's pretend those group, you know how certain times you can be around a group of people and they can, you can sort of start doing things that the group does. Do you feel like if you grew up alone without a group of people, which a lot of kids do, they're in a, they're in a complex or in their neighborhood, there's all older people, there's, they don't have anybody. Do you feel you, you would have been as sexual and you would have figured out a way to do those acts with other people or was it your group of friends that turned you into this or were you the leader? You know, it was a little bit of both. Um, there's an old expression, wherever I went, there I was. Circumstances contribute, but I think that I was kind of one of those people who I just like that dopamine drip that you get from behaving addictively. So maybe it wouldn't have been sex. Maybe it would have been drinking and drugs earlier or gambling. But there was there was some that that feeling I got that rush is what I got addicted to very early. So maybe I would have been food. You know, I think food and sex are kind of close. So maybe if I wasn't, you know, having oral sex with my friends, I would have shoved a donut into my face. And that would have given me whatever comfort that I was looking for, you know. Um, so I think it would have been one thing or another. So I'm actually glad it was that and not food, you know, because the food's to me the hardest one to, to, sex is a really hard one, but food is a brutal addiction. And that's one I'm glad I didn't get stuck with. So maybe, I don't know. I remember seeing a movie that I really enjoyed that was dark called My Own Private Idaho. Is that River Phoenix or, yeah. River Phoenix. And I believe what I learned in that film was something very, very interesting. And you tell me if I'm wrong, because based on your experiences, you would know. A little role play here, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, if I'm the John, the male John, and you're the male prostitute, and I give you $100, what do I want? Well, it could probably be one of many things. What's 95% of the time, what do I want? 
Um, I paid you as a prostitute $100. What do I want? Maybe closeness. You know, there's something that I I think closeness more than just a release. Uh, And again, I've only been myself as a John, whereas the prostitute has the example of so many different Johns. But um, I think it's a sense of connection or something like that. And it's true. And I'll tell you the act that is the most requested act by the guy who pays a hundred dollars, the John to the male prostitute. I'm going to guess. Yes. It's a uh, hugging or kissing. And he wants to blow the prostitute. Oh, the guy wants to. Yes. Because he wants that companionship, that feeling of control, that feeling that he's the one in control and he's the one giving pleasure. It's a very interesting thing. And so when you're a young kid, yes, it, these, these things that you speak of for our audience, and I think this is really important because a lot of people don't know what it takes to get to the next level in your life and you, you overcome all these obstacles. And you're for Jim Norton, when he was born, he was in control. He was not in control of where he was born, where he grew up, the friends that surrounded him at a young age. And he wasn't in control of the emotions that were going through him. He was, in my humble opinion, he was born with these feelings. He was born with these things embedded in him. I wasn't born with the feelings of, of um, you know, blowing my uh my uh friends and them blowing me i had my own demons and my own demons which i will share with you because i can't believe you know i'm i'm across from you and talking about this because i think it's only fair for me to say my demons were that i was really really bad with animals i used to have all these cats with kittens in the house and everything like this and these cats would have kittens and kittens and i remember something so horrible that I did as a kid and I don't know why I did it maybe it was because my dad died and I just I was just reeling and I just was acting out but I remember we had this little refrigerator in the basement and the and the mother cats would always be by the refrigerator in a box full of kittens and I would take kittens and I would put them on the top of the refrigerator and have them crawl and they'd fall off like four feet onto the mother and now granted I didn't kill any kittens they never were killed but when I look back on that moment which I'm thinking of for the first time in probably 40 years looking across from you I realized that there's something inside me that I had to overcome and be a better person and figure out how to get out of that cycle of what I was doing and the pain that I was going through. And I remember when I got myself out of that cycle, because I remember one day I came down and these cats were having so many kittens, they just didn't have any milk anymore. And I remember going down and seeing like two kittens that had died because they they just didn't have enough milk to to feed the... And I saw these dead kittens there and I thought to myself, this mother, even though it's a cat, it's not human, 
experienced this loss and and uh, and and thank god it wasn't from my hands and from that moment on i never ever wanted to do anything hurtful to any animal again and i've just been when i hear of anybody doing anything i just go mental but you just jogged me because you went through this thing where i don't even know how you move to the next point of your life after your because when you're doing something like that you have no you know you're with your friends you know you're doing something wrong let me rephrase that you feel like you're doing something wrong it's a secret it is something secretive or you know it's wrong in other people's eyes whether or not you know morally it is but you do feel like it's wrong yeah and it's your secret and you're keeping the secret and another year goes by and you're keeping the secret and another year goes by and before you know it you start becoming a teenager how did you handle that like how did you move to the next point or was it just another addiction that you you went to to transfer from that one well the way i started getting you know the the laugh started coming at that point um you know that's how i got girls to notice me was being funny that was the only way girls looked at me is if i made them laugh so that initial experience i would have you know i mean i started to just love girls and they would read my funny stories in class and then girls would be interested in me. So the addiction switches, you know, it's kind of like a love addiction too. And then it becomes pornographic, like magazines and stuff like that. Whereas you're not acting out with your friends anymore, but I'm going to the, the uh, motel down the street and they used to have a porn vending machine. They would have Wii, Playboy and Penthouse every month. And I would take a screwdriver and I would like Jimmy the uh, thing, so I would steal dirty magazines. So that kind of got me through a lot of my teen years um, before I started. You know, I didn't get laid till I was 18. So I would have like, you know, oral sex with a few girls in the neighborhood. But uh, it was mostly porn that got me through my, uh, my teen years. So the addiction just switched. And so you're moving through and you're using humor as a way to get girls. That was it, yeah. It was the only shot I had. When you were a teenager, how often did you drink? Um, whatever was available, you know, I mean, it got to a point very quickly though, where it was hard to go outside sober, you know, it got to that point because the low self-esteem was already there. So, you know, when you, when you start drinking and that kind of frees you when you don't have that, you know, you're even more withdrawn. So I would say relatively quickly, it became something I had to do to feel comfortable at all. Do you still have low self-esteem? Yeah, sure. I mean, it comes out differently. Um, you know, I have a body of work for 25 years. I'm like, okay, I, I know intellectually that I'm a good comic. Like, I could write that down on paper. But sure, I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, I'm always waiting for them to realize they've made a mistake when they give me something good. Um, and it's funny, I recently, because anger is such an addiction for me, and it's such a, a place to go to that's comfortable and safe, you know what? It's so odd, and I want you to continue with yeah. that. I've known you for how long? Um, probably at least twenty years. Okay, I've never. I've, there's never been a situation where I've ever been in your presence where I've seen you angry. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things also that I I love about our relationship is because you do talk about the anger issues, and I feel like I've been privy to not seeing that side of you. Yeah. It's one of those weird things where the addiction of that feel, it's a safe feeling for men. Like, you know, 
being sad or hurt is what's really underneath it or feeling not as good as, but that's like a really hard, uncontrollable thing. You know, anger feels like safe and comfortable and controlled. I'm mad, but the bottom, it's a smokescreen. It's bullshit. I'm, I'm usually hurt or I'm just, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be accepted or whatever nonsense it is. And recently I said, I'm going to stop doing that. My ex-girlfriend, I talked to her and she's like, you got to stop. Your life is great. You've gotten everything you've wanted. Like, shut up. And she was right. So recently I said, I'm not going to get angry anymore like that. I'm going to catch myself. And um, it's felt really good, like, to, to not constantly feed into that. And I had something happen this weekend, which really has been bothering me. And I'm not saying the wrong things to the wrong people. I'm not yelling at people I shouldn't yell at. I'm kind of just taking it in stride and realizing it's a part of being in the business. You're going to have things happen that you don't like. But you know something, when you walked in today and I, I asked you something off mic, I said, are you okay? Because there's a heaviness about you today. And, and I know what you're saying, yeah. Barry, this is me, this is whatever. But I felt that there was something that was, something was happening in your life. Yeah. It's not, um, I'm better today than I was yesterday. And, and again, it's, it's not even about the event itself. It's just about, I'm so used to reacting a certain way. I'm so used to immediately reacting negatively that in this one, I'm not really, I'm like, you know, I'm saying things to my manager about it, but I'm not calling the wrong people and saying the wrong shit. But yeah, I guess today when I came in, I'm still kind of like, I want to call Colin after, um, you know, it's, it's about something being Colin Quinn, Colin Quinn. Yeah. And I actually want to call Louie. There's two guys who are Louis CK. Uh, yeah. Comedians that I know who I know have both been through experiences similar, um, way before I've gone through them. And they're both, you know, guys I respect tremendously, but I've been thinking about those guys all morning. Like I'm going to call them this afternoon. And without giving up details of what's bothering you, what's the thematic thing behind it for our audience? That's that's I'll tell you what it is. It's it's a piece. Um, I have a show on vice.com and I'm not saying that just to plug it. It's a talk show where I interview people, like I said, and we shot sketches and one of the sketches they want to cut and I'm, I'm conflicted because there's a, I'm a, I'm a bad collaborator because I like 100% control of things, you know, cause as a comic, that's what it is. You're not in a band, you know, you're a solo act as a comedian. But I also understand that these guys really like me and they believe in what I'm doing and they might be right about the cut. Like I, I have to realize that uh, they may actually know something I don't know. And I've been the instinct to me is to fight any type of my stuff being edited. And it's very, uh, very frustrating to not be able to control this one. I'm going to give you some advice that Buddy Hackett would give you. Okay. Okay. They didn't walk the last 90 feet. Do you know what that means? No. The people who are making the decisions on whether they're going to cut a piece that you created and put together with your comedy mind of 25 fucking years didn't walk that 90 feet from the side of the stage to the mic over 10,000 times. Your instincts are what made the piece. Your instincts are what you put into the piece. And you need to fight for your vision. And if they're right, then let the audience decide if they're right. 
because you are the guy that I'm going to bet on as opposed to the person who's writing the notes for, you know, noting you for vice.com. You know, the thing with that, and that was, that's what I think. But then there's the other side where they've, they've made it. They have really given me very few notes. Like that, that's another part of me that I'm conflicted with because these guys have been great. Like they really have that in fuck with monologue jokes or interview questions. Like they were completely go ahead, man, do what you got to do. Like they really were ha- more hands off creatively than anyone I've ever worked with. Like, uh, this is just one that he feels kind of strongly about because he feels it can hurt. Um, it's not about him going, ah, that's not a good joke. Um, Jim, what's, what's the worst thing in your mind that could happen if he's right? The worst thing that could happen if he's right and I show it, which would be up to him anyway, but is that it winds up hurting my chances of the show lasting because there's a public backlash. Um, that as a performer, my worst fear of him being right is that this is a guy who was a little detached from the process, saw it from the outside, saw something I didn't see because I'm so close to it. And then I kick and scream like a baby and get my way and then come to realize like, wow, he wasn't fucking with me creatively. He literally just did see something I didn't see. Like, and, and I'm trying to balance those things because he has not stepped in with the other stuff and, and bothered me at all. He's like, that's great, man. Funny. It's, 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 if this was a guy that broke my balls, it would be much easier for me to know how I feel about it, but he's not. So it's almost like a part of me knows I should cut it. And this is what I'm struggling with. I'm, I'm hating to admit to myself that as much as I love this thing, he's saying something that I kind of deep, deep down understand might be true. And I'm hating marrying those two things. So you're saying that your instincts are telling you that you should cut the sketch. Or that he has a damn good point about it and his fear is justified. That's not what I asked you. Okay. Are your instincts, your gut instincts, to cut the piece? It's. I can give you a yes on that, but it's for the reason I just said. It's for a reason that somebody else is telling you. No, no, no. Me, meaning, my gut instinct is that my fans will love the piece. But my gut instinct is also that there are a lot of people who aren't that familiar with me or this character who are not necessarily radio fans who will be extremely bothered by it to a point where it makes them not want to come back. And it's one of those things where if they have a history with you that's not radio and they go, wow, we like this Jim Norton show, then you do something and they're already invested in you and they like you and they kind of, but I've only had one episode up. And then if there are people that are just starting to watch it in the second episode, I do something and it's not about being a joke being missed. It's about a four minute sketch that really turns certain people off completely. That's my, so my instinct is probably to cut it. And that's the hard part that is to admit. Why couldn't you save it until people get to know you better? Maybe we can. It's a very, it's very possible that we can do that. Do you uh, think Chappelle, when he was doing the white supremacist sketch with the hood, the Ku Klux Klanman, and he takes off the hood, do you think he's sitting around a room saying, God, I wonder if I should, uh, I wonder if I should put this on or, you know, it's like, or 
when Family Guy did the episode where Stewie uh, blew somebody. Do you think, you know, uh, Seth MacFarlane is walking around saying, uh, you know, uh, yeah, 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 maybe we should cut this. It's like you have to, you're a risk taker. You know, I just went to see Jim Jeffries uh, do a show. <laughs> I mean, un unapologetic. I mean, just the guy goes for it. He's got great material. He offends me and it's hard to offend me. He makes me uncomfortable. But there isn't anybody in comedy that I know of that's going to look at what he does and says, eh, you know, that guy, you know, whatever. He should reconsider what he's uh, what he's doing up there. And it's like, so that's what I just worry about with an artist and whatever. Now, granted, you have a unique process of probably doubt in your mind for a very good reason at this time in your life because you're experiencing a situation where one of the guys that you worked with is no longer on the air because of something that he did that he didn't think out on Twitter. Yeah. Along, you know, and, and it's the whole thing where you just, and you said before about your anger issues this weekend, you're thinking things out. You're thinking them out. And so the one thing I will say to you, and I know this is odd to hear after I was so went so strongly about your vision and everything like that, I think what you're looking at is very, very smart in the sense that the evidence in front of you recently suggests that at this time, people are going to be looking at things more closely. And maybe this executive that's on the line with you is looking out for you saying, look, people are going to look at anything you're doing right now, anything they can take and rally around to say, and another Opie and Anthony disciple did this. And so that's why in my mind, I suggested the compromise of holding it and waiting for a time at the end of the first season or the beginning of the second season, or whatever it is. So you still have your vision, you still have what you're doing, and you haven't lost your voice. Well, that's, you know, it's, that's kind of the issue. It's not even about getting necessarily in trouble. It's, uh, I just, I have so much, usually an artist does not get, like even with Chappelle's show, I'm sure, or with uh, Seth MacFarlane, I'm sure those guys had things that were squashed. Like Dave's first sketch uh, was so amazing and hard hitting, but I'm sure there's plenty of things he wanted to do that they pushed back on. And the same with Seth. Uh, you know, even South Park occasionally has gotten shut down. It's and and I don't want to be so stubborn when I've, they've given me 90% control, which is more than most people get. And the, on the very few notes they give me to go like fuck that, you, you know what I mean? It's almost like. And the character that they're uncomfortable with, um, I've shot two sketches over out of four shows. And the character is? He's a pedophile. Um, there's no children in the sketch, but he's a pedophile. And it's it's definitely something, if you're not familiar with me and the history of the character, you would look at it and go, oof. And one of them, they're fine with the sketches. They just feel that I think two is too much. And the one that's a little more uncomfortable... They're going like, we got to, you know, give it a little bit of time. Like I'm looking at it detached and he's not being unreasonable and he's not 
You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that just to give the right answer. I mean, I really, this is my dilemma because I'm arrogant and I'm a performer and I'm a solo actor. I like to think what I want to think and nobody tells me what to say on stage. But, you know, who does a show where they get zero notes? It just doesn't happen. You know, Louie can do that now, but I did lucky Louie. HBO is there every Wednesday and every Thursday giving a lot of notes. You know, and he was Louis C.K. by then. So, you know, a lot of the notes were very good, too. A lot of them were bad, but a lot of them were very smart notes. So I don't want to be so stubborn that I defend something that I'll look back on and go, you fucking dumbbell. This guy actually had a point, and you were so married to the arrogance of being in control that you ignored the bigger picture that he was being really smart. And his one step away, like me walking that last 90 feet, in some ways may make me like so uh, focused on something that I miss a mistake. Does that make any sense too? I'm having a discussion with you. I hear what you say and I'm forceful about what I believe. And then I stick around to hear you talk more about things and how it is and give more evidence of whatever it is you're going through. And then I realize what the right I don't mean to say the right answer, but the answer that I think would be the most beneficial to you. When I put my manager hat on, whenever somebody writes a check to you to put something on television, you lose control. Normally you lose control because there's somebody who gets paid an amount of money to justify their existence on the project. That's just the way it is. You know, Michael Wright at TBS and TNT might say, my biggest philosophy is you give the artist their check, you give their artist their, their license to do whatever they want, and you get the fuck out of the way. But if, I, if, if you were to have that guy come up to you and say, listen, I saw your set at the uh, St. Denis Theater and, um, you know, that last bit you did there, you know, I think it would be better if you did this, 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 and this. And you wouldn't be sitting in a hotel room with me saying, gee, I wonder if I should have done that, this, or that. So in this case, I'm actually going to reverse what I originally said because you have to go with your instincts and your gut as an artist, as an executive, as anybody. And your gut is telling you, hmm, this guy has given me like a handful of notes ever. He believes in me. He's given me the own sh my own show. It's in his best interest for me to win because if I win, he wins. And so he's mentioning this, not just creatively, but out of love for me and love for my talent and the love to want the world not to get down on me like they've gotten down on Jason Biggs or, or Anthony from Opie and Anthony. And this is a critical time because the world is in a way now where TMZ has changed the face of the way the world looks. It used to be the Boston Herald, you know, or the New York right. Post, where it's like, you know, the New York Times would be like, Michael Jackson has bought the bones of the elephant man. And then you'd pick up the New York Post. Jacko is wacko. Right. And it's so... And now TMZ is permeating into the, our subculture and our and, and every part of our lives. And now it's TMZ sports. And now if you're a sports personality, you do something. And so it's a time, believe it or not, of some of the greatest censorship 
of our time because it's not the censorship of the world or the country. It's the knowledge in your mind that you have to self-censor yourself because you're worried about something being grabbed onto, taken out of context, and then you lose your job. So again, in a long-winded way, my advice to you, which you are not asking for, <laughs> is to go with your instincts. And I know that every call you make to Louie and every call you make to Colin, in the end, the major advice that anybody would give anybody, including yourself, is go with your gut. And you shared on this podcast that your gut is telling you, hmm, maybe there's something to that. Maybe I should hold it. And that's what the answer is. And and 99% of the time when your gut tells you that, it's right. Yeah, and, and, and the evidence around it points to the fact that that's kind of the right call because, again, if it was somebody that gave me so many notes and said, don't say this, you'll get in trouble, but it's not like that. Not one monologue joke in four episodes did they say, hey, could you? And, and some of them are pretty harsh. I mean, the, I, Whitney Cummings is on one of the shows, and I did about six minutes on Donald Sterling. That was, They loved it. They, there was nothing. So the one time they step in and go, look, could you? I can't be an arrogant idiot, you know, and, and I think that's the problem with performers sometimes because I look back on stuff I've done. I've got certain regrets about things I wrote because they came out too harsh. I didn't get in trouble for them. You know, my book, I Hate Your Guts, was written after I got fired. I was very angry about that. Nappy Headed Hose, and he hadn't violated any FCC. I went crazy. I was so angry at the language policing uh, over this guy getting fired over a joke. And I wrote a pretty harsh book where I just attacked people who I didn't like. And it kind of did feel good in a way. But I attacked a few people too harsh and I wish I hadn't. Like, I regret that. Zero trouble for it. No one came after me. But as a person, I didn't take a long enough step back and think about what I was doing. And, you know, it's like, I don't want to make that mistake with this. Like, where I just, I'm fucking pig-headed and I walk through it. And then I realize, like, you idiot. You should have just listened to this guy, and then you could have done the sketch, you know, six months from now. Once the show was established and people were comfortable, like, it was that simple. And every comedian I respect has made those moves, you know? Do you think Colin does 100% of what he wanted, or Louis on his show? No, of course not, you know? So I have to just be smart about it, so. Well, Colin has the greatest example of anything, and... It shows how Lauren Michaels operates and how I feel like he's in a situation where, you know, I truly believe, you know, he's one of the greatest minds of, of, of any generation. But I was very close to Saturday Night Live and I was, had a lot of cast members on the show. And um, Lauren was of the philosophy of how he managed that no artist was greater than the show. And for his unique talent and amazing capacity to create things that were unlike anybody else at a desk, Norm MacDonald was becoming bigger than the show. And his sense of entitlement were becoming bigger than the show. And the way he navigated through the walls of SNL and how he spoke on certain occasions were different than when he first came to the show. And everybody watched the show, always looked forward to Norm MacDonald. And then there was one Christmas vacation where everybody went their own way and went on their vacations, and you came back in January and you turned on Saturday Night Live, 
and Colin Quinn was in the chair saying, hey, everybody, I don't I don't know exactly know why I'm here, but I'm here and uh, let's go. And so Colin had two examples in front of him. His instinct at the show was to work as hard as he could and be as innovative as he could and keep his head down and not say something within the walls that would get people down or take them out of the game to want to work with him, which was an instinct that it was against how he normally is because he likes to speak his mind, similarly to what you said about the anger and this weekend. And then he saw the example of how somebody could feel too big about themselves and lose it all. I'm not saying Lorne, I'm not saying Norm MacDonald has lost it all. Norm is a, a brilliant artist and he can have anything he wants. But you mean the gig, the all in the sense of that gig. That yeah. gig. And so for you, the examples are all before you and they're happening now as well. So it's like you have a lot in your mind and you deserve to have a lot in your mind. And the world, the way it's working now, is making it that way for you and all artists. Yeah, you know, it's uh, SNL is a great example you gave too because I've never been close to that show, but I know that they'll cut things last minute all the time. Like that's a part of that gig. You know that you're going to write something that you love and is funny and killed in rehearsal. And for whatever reason, they might just go, nah, it's not, and cut it. And every, how many guys at SNL can say they haven't had 50 things cut in the final rehearsal or whatever? It's just a part of it. So that's, that's part of what we do is we, you know, it, there is a certain sense of, comp, a sense of compromise you have to make as a performer. You know, there's times I'm, I'm doing a gala tonight. I'm doing the Seth Rogen gala. The compromise I'm making is that I'm not going to just walk up and use any language I want to use because they've told me it's a clean thing for Canadian TV. So I kind of, I have a decision to make. Do I either go, well, fuck them. I don't do that and not do the gig because I want to do the gig. Or do I just go, okay, I'm going to work clean because that's what's required. So you do make compromises all the time as a performer. Um, most of my dilemma is based in self-centeredness and arrogance that, uh, I just don't like to compromise, you know, and I hate to admit that about myself. I hate to admit that even alone, like all of this is about me being a fucking baby who doesn't like to hear no, but that's a lot of my problem. Well, it's been a lot of my problem too. I don't like to hear no, which goes back to the original thing we talked about. So, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to just reset where we were you're a teenager you're making girls laugh but now you have to go into the world you have to make a living and did you know what you wanted to do at that point heading into your 20s it's all i ever wanted was comedy so the time i was 12 and i saw richard Pryor. i, I was like filmed live in concerts from long beach that that's when i knew what you did with being funny like, oh, that, that's the trend. I knew being funny felt good, but I didn't know what you would do with that. But then I saw that and I understood that's what I want to do. I want to have that physical effect on people because it was a give and take. You know, you watch prior work and then they would show like a side shot of him in the audience and he was hitting the audience and they were moving. It was a really weird, almost like a, a string was attached to them. And I realized that's what I want to do. It's when you watch life. those specials, you realize that Richard Pryor... And the audience were like the beach and the waves. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, they were connected in some way. 
but I didn't think I'd ever do it. So, uh, you know, I dropped out of high school after a, uh, it was a fake suicide attempt. I say fake because if I wanted to be dead, I'd be dead. It was more an attention-seeking thing. Um, went to rehab. There's a lot of suicide attempts that are fake suicide attempts that become yeah fatal. And there's a lot of things that happen that people do, like lend bias, that aren't even suicide attempts that become fatal. Right. So you have to acknowledge that a part of you knew the risk. Yeah, I mean, you know, I want to. I get stitches in my wrist. Like, I mean, it was a, it was a bad incident. But what uh, were you? What was? What brought you to that incident? Because from what you're telling me is like you're you're using humor to you, you know you lose your virginity at 18. You're getting you're getting women with your with your humor. You're is it? What was it? What was? I think this is when I was 17. I don't think I was. Uh, I wound up, this was New Year's Eve of 85 going to 86, and I'd cut myself a bunch. There was something about it that felt cathartic, even though it was, it was all A, attention-seeking, and B, it felt kind of cathartic to bleed. The first time you did it, how did it come about, and what was the impetus for it? You know, I don't remember, because I was probably in a partial blackout, but I always carried a box cutter, um, because I worked in warehouses and in Bradley's and in, you know, ShopRite and shit, and you would need these box cutters to slice his boxes open. I don't remember. I got mad at something. Oh, yeah. I, it might have been one of the first times I got drunk, but I got really mad at something. I don't remember why I sliced myself, but I did. And I, it might have been in the back of my arm. And the fact that it was bleeding felt kind of, you know, you think you're cool at 17, you know, as a douche. But it also felt uh, good in a way I really can't explain. People that have done it understand that. But there's something that you feel like something is happening. You're doing something and getting a result, even if it's an awful result. Um, so I kind of became accustomed to doing that. And, you know, a lot of times it was, it was relatively bad where I was scarred up. And then the one time I did it way worse than I meant to. Um, and that was when my family said, you got to go away. So when I was 17, they forced me into a rehab for 30 days. Um, and that was why I didn't win class clown because, you know, they gave away class clown, but you know, the, the photos were taken in January of 86 when the challenger blew up, I was in rehab. Um, you know, and they didn't want to send anybody to a fucking rehab, photograph somebody with a white bandage on his wrist, class clown, <laughs> fucking awful. <laughs> so, um, I drank for another year after that. So you got out of rehab and you started drinking again? Yeah. Yeah. I drank in the rehab with my roommate. You drank in the rehab. Yeah. I had a, a how was that possible? We used to go out to 12 step meetings. And one time we went out to 12 step meetings and my roommate, Dwayne, guy from Trenton, who was older than me, snuck out to the liquor store, bought himself a pint of wine or uh, bought me a half pint of vodka. We went back to the room and he downed the wine and I drank the vodka. And um, they found out about it, that we drank. And I lied in group and said I didn't drink because I didn't want to get sent to a longer facility. And um, went back out. I just could never get back into school. So that was kind of the end of the education was senior year of high school. I just kind of stopped going. So when's the first time you go on stage? What Three happens? years sober. I was 21. I, went to, I got sober February of 87. Now... How did you do that? I just had enough. I just, I was giving advice. I was drunk giving advice to a friend of mine who was ruining his life. And my girlfriend at the time, who I actually fucked the first time, uh, you know, I lost my virginity too, was going to leave me. And I was 18. I was like, let me just try getting sober because my father's been sober since I was two. Um, so the lineage is in your family. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a whole bunch of drunks. His father was a drunk. Yeah, it's just all of us. Our bloodline is filled with it. So I started... Uh, going to these 12 step meetings and uh, it sucked and I hated it. 
and uh, I thought my life was over. I was sitting in a church basement talking to two sober guys. They're eating cheese and crackers, and they're talking about a morning radio show. And I remember just thinking, like, this is fucking awful. I'm never going to be funny again. I'm never going to laugh again. And um, so after three years of that, I finally tried stand-up with a friend of mine who was sober came with me. Wow. Talk about the first material you wrote and what you did and where you went on and what the result was. First joke I ever did on stage was a terrible joke. It was something about scientists had discovered a black hole and then it turned out it was just Oprah Winfrey Lay and Spread Eagle. That was the first joke I ever told on stage. It was a giant Oprah Winfrey vagina joke. And it didn't get a laugh. It got nothing. Um, and that was the weird part for me was hearing my voice projected over a microphone and not hearing anything back. You know, your friends, anything you say, they laugh at. You have that relationship. I didn't have that with an audience. So I didn't understand that you have to establish something, be comfortable. You told me actually when I was in 1997, I was seven years in at that point or 96, I used to psych myself out before gigs. They're going to fucking hate me. I had to do that. And you were, we were in the comic strip and you said one time, one day you're not going to need that. You're just going to walk into a room and be funny. You told me that. And I was like, that was one thing I always remembered that I wouldn't need to get myself into a headspace of being negative because I, I remember now it, you know it's so weird you say that now i remember that you in the comic strip there was this little area that you went through where there was like i don't know some kind of a dish there was dishes or a thing and you went through the side area to get to the walk out to the stage and there was a little sound booth yep. and and i believe if i'm not mistaken i popped my head in and you were like I'm not going to say you were doing exercises, but you were doing some kind of like, get it, you know, you were in your, you were like, you're pacing. You were like, it yeah. was something like that. Like, like this thing, like you were like a, it was almost like you were a track runner getting ready for a meet. I'm not saying you were stretching. Right, or I know like what you that, mean, yeah. And I think that's when I saw you and I said that to you because, um, that's interesting. You remember that. Oh yeah. That was one piece of advice I remembered, uh, for a long time is you never have to do anything to get yourself ready to be funny. You know, you just got to go on stage and be funny. So that was, a very, that was probably the most important thing you taught me was that one moment. Because that's one thing. It's the only bit of advice I can ever remember a manager or agent giving me that I actually remember specifically when I got it and where I got it. Oh, thanks, man. That's, no, it's true. That means a lot to me. That was very helpful because it saved me a lot of agony and a lot of self-doubt, which I still have anyway, but nowhere near what it used to be. You know, um, I'm not psyched out. The crowd's going to hate me. If they do, they do. When's the first time a set all came together and you crushed and people were coming up to you and saying, holy shit. That you know, was amazing. That's, that's a good question. I don't remember the first set because, but I remember the time of it. It was at when I used to go to rascals in New Jersey and do these open mics on, in ocean township or how Jim Florentine would take me to the playpen lounge, which was a disaster. Um, and I don't think it was a whole set that convinced me. I think it was moments in the set that the other comedians liked. And then I would come off stage and the other comedian would go, that was really funny when you talked about it. And it was usually the self-deprecating or the self-revealing stuff. So it was like guys like Bob Levy and Jim Florentine and other like local headliners, those guys, when, I, when they would first tell me that I was funny, that is what kind of kept me going. It was, I don't think it was ever just a killer set. When did you know in your heart that you were 
never going to go back and do a day job at Bradley's again. After I, well, I, I bombed so badly. It was the night before Desert Storm happened. And um, I, I bombed terribly on stage and I was going to quit comedy. I was six or eight months into it. And I remember crying as I drove home and thinking that this dream was gone. You know? Was that the first time you ever cried about stand-up? Yeah. And I'm like, it was horrible. And how many times in your life had you cried before that moment that you remember? Like, really cried about something? Many times, actually. I'm a blubbering idiot. Many times before and since. Like, I, my, my ex-girlfriend was a fucking... She was a lizard. Like, nothing made her emotional. Me, I watched the first season of Lost. I cried all the... I'm, like, fucking <laughs> horrible. with it. But I kind of like that about myself because it makes me feel, you know, at least connected. Uh, but I remember uh, that night thinking, it's never going to get this bad again. It's never going to hurt this bad again. Um, and from that moment on, I knew that it's it's either going to be this... Or I'm going to throw myself off a building. Not, I wasn't even depressed when I thought that. I'm like, but those are your options. And I worked for, I think, another year at a day job. And once I got fired from that, I said, I'll never have another day job. And I haven't. So I think from 1992 to now, um, I've, I've never worked again. Who was the first person to give you a paid gig? Uh, Casey Martin. The gig was the... Ho- the, the uh, it was a hotel off exit 8A... I believe it was a Holiday Inn Express when they do it was a $25 check, coast to coast comedy production. I still have a photocopy of the check. I should have saved the check, but I needed it. Um, Florentine got me a gig with this guy, Casey Martin, and I was hosting in the uh, James, I think it was Jamesburg or Jamestown Holiday Inn. Didn't go well. Didn't go no. well. No. Talk about the first television break you ever got, and what was it? Friday Night Videos. Um, I believe I was still in the high energy thing. They shot it in Conan's studio back then. And I was that kind of a happy go lucky, like approval seeking, really fucking nauseating to watch, you know, how we do it. like, I was all kind of high strung and a little character quirky. And, um, I remember that it didn't go as well as I wanted, but it went better than I thought it was going to go. But that was my first TV. I still have that too. I really should put that on Twitter sometime because it was truly uncomfortable to watch. Um, and then I did that one again, and then Louis Anderson gave me a little shot on TV. Hank Gallo uh, liked me a lot. Of course, Hank Gallo and yes. Louis Anderson, one of the most supportive guys with comedians there ever was. I saw Louis recently on a, on a radio show, and I was able to thank him because he gave me a lot of confidence by putting me on that show. That was a big break for me because from that on that show, I met uh, Dice Clay's opener. Patty, who introduced me to Andrew, because I told her he was my idol back then. And, I, and then she goes, oh, he's one of my best friends. And from that moment, Andrew took me on the road. Maybe six months later, we became friends. He introduced me to Opie and Anthony. So that Louie thing uh, always, you know, I, I was one thing I was always, I always showed up. I never didn't show up. I didn't sabotage myself and not go to gigs. You know what I mean? Uh, that moment uh, of going to, the, to do that set that Maureen got me at the comedy store where I finally uh, got to talk to Dice changed my life i mean from that moment on changed my life and that's what you have to realize in the audience is that you never know you never know what moment or what experience is going to change your life and who you're going to meet so just go just go wherever it is and and neil brennan who did the podcast one of the things he said that has always uh, stayed with me throughout my life and i believe it 
He said nothing has ever happened in his career that hasn't been initiated by hanging out at a comedy club. And uh, yeah, good point. And you meet people. You, if you are a comedian doing something, or you know, I don't care if you're a, if you're a lawyer or if you're a refrigeration expert, whatever it is, hang out with the people along your affiliation. Things will happen to you, and great things will come about if you do great work. You know, if 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 Jim had gone on at the comedy store and bombed and the set was horrible and the content was bad, you know, I don't think Louis Anderson would be hanging out with him. And I don't think Dice Clay would be saying, come on the road with me. Well, let me tell you what happened with it. It's funny you say that because it actually the set didn't go well. But what, here's what it was. I was doing a warm up for Louis. Louis was the next night. So I wound up going on stage and uh, nobody wanted to follow Dice. Maureen got me a seven minute clean set to rehearse for Louie. Maureen Taron. Taron, yes. Who worked with me. Dice walks in and goes on and nobody wanted to follow him. No, I picked up the telephone and I, it was a payphone back that I held it. I called Jim Florentine. I'm like, listen, who's on stage? And he's like, fuck, I'm getting over there. So nobody wanted to follow Andrew. Frankie Pace didn't want to do it. Because the thing about Andrew Dice Clay and Frankie Pace a 16, 18-wheel truck could fall through the ceiling when Frankie Pace is on stage, and you wouldn't hear it. He was a guy who did props, and he was looked right. like a plumber. He was a plumber, and he had done Saturday Night Live as a stand-up, which very few people had done. But Dice had a way of just taking a crowd and literally like shaping it into his own persona and his own darkness, and there was no time limit with Andrew Dice Clay. If you thought Andrew Dice Clay was going to go on and do 10 minutes, you're wrong. He would go as long as possible, and sometimes he would go, and he would walk half the crowd, and that would make him happy because he knew that he'd taken the crowd where he wanted it, and he was in control, and anybody after him would just have the, have the scraps. He, he brought me on. You know how they destroy the next guy. He annoyed they do a tag. They do what's called a tag team. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know comedy, uh, very few people utilize the tag team system of comedy. Uh, in the galas, sometimes, you know, the one with Don Rickles, they did that. They did a tag team situation. But mostly it's always a host. But the tag team means, for those of you who don't know, is that a guy goes on stage first. He might be introduced from the back. He goes, he does a set. He says, thank you, good night. The applause comes on for him. He stays on stage, and he says, this next guy is Jim Norton. So I went on stage after Dice, and I bombed. Seven minutes clean, but I didn't care. I wound up do. I wanted to follow Dice, even though I knew it would be awful. But how was the content? It was my TV set, so it was good. Um, and then I came off, and Florentine was talking to him. So me having Florentine showed up. Uh, so we told him we were huge fans of the day the laughter died records and how ridiculous some of the material was. And Dice loved the fact that we loved this album. So he takes us into the back of the comedy store because we're quoting all these ridiculous lines he did on these albums that were funny to us. So Dice goes, you guys got to go on and do this. So he got the comedy store to put me and Florentine on stage. And we just did these random Dice lines. And it bombed terribly. This is after I had already bombed. And Dice is in the back laughing. So we go through this. We have this amazing night with Dice. And then at Louie, I tell the opener, I met Dice. And she's like, he's one of my best friends. So she gave him my number. And from there, we connected. But that and was I, all because Maureen got me that set. And I actually saw you open up for Dice. At the Roxy. Oh, yeah. 
it was one of the greatest moments that I've had as a manager because Dice was somebody who, and you don't know this about me, is that I was there at the comic strip at the Rodney Dangerfield special when Dice went on. I was in the front row with Dom Herrera and Dice and Carol Leifer, Lenny Clark. I saw his first set ever that was filmed for HBO. Oh, really? And I'll never forget that night of what I saw. And he changed the way I thought about comedy because unlike you, I was a sheltered kid. But when I watched Dice... You know, if you're ever sitting in a front row of a comedy club, there is basically the side that the wall is on, that the back to the comic is on. There's the front and there's either side. And I was on one side and I was looking right past him doing his set. The set about the set where um, he's um, talking about how he's on a date with a girl and, uh, you know, he's talking about her blowing him and the getting the bank. The, yes. <laughs> And I think the stuff, uh, getting the stuff in her hair or whatever and whatever it is. And I'm looking across and there's these two beautiful women as he's starting the bit across from me on the other side. And I'm looking past him and he finishes the bit and they are laughing like an African-American audience at Def Jam. And I'm like, holy shit, women. Wow. They, they think about a lot of these same things that guys think about. This guy had the balls to go there right. and the confidence to go there, knowing that it could offend, but he just stole the entire show in that moment, and he changed the face of comedy at that moment and when it got on the air. And what I saw in with those 200 people in the room was before anybody else witnessed it on HBO, and as I left... Even if I, even after I talked to Lenny Clark and Carol Leifer and all the people there, the bottom line was is that I knew that this guy came in and took the gold and took everything away from all those comics. I'm not saying that they didn't do well right, and right, all right. of them didn't do well. But in the end, if you're a comic on a show, there can be only one winner. And here I was going to the Roxy and seeing a guy that I was privy to, that I worked with, go on before a guy that I saw do it. And I'd known from experience with Dice Clay, the opening act for Dice normally got buried. It was a tough gig. Yeah. The crowds did not want an opening act. They wanted Andrew. But you went on and you fucking destroyed the place. And in all honesty, and if you remember that night at the Roxy, if you were to compare your set in the decibels of how you performed and the level of laughter that you got, and you were to take a cross-section of Andrew's act somewhere an hour in and compare the level of laughter, you got more laughs that night in your cross-section than he did. And when I left that Roxy and got in my car, which seems to be a running theme, I said to myself, this guy is ready for the next level of the business. He is just as strong as this guy. The only difference is the world doesn't know it yet. 
You know, I remember that night. I don't remember the set, but I do remember the night. That was when he taped Face Down, Ass Up. It was that he taped an album that night. I think Chris Rock was there. That was a big thing to perform with Chris in the room. It made me feel uh, really good. Yeah, that, it's Dice changed my life. I'm very, very, uh, I love Andrew, man. A lot of guys got down on him, but uh, he did a lot for me. You know, he introduced me to Opie and Anthony. Without him, I don't know where my career would have gone. You know, and it's all from that one dumb moment of showing up to do a set that I didn't want to do. Show up. Always show up. I had a guy, a sober guy told me that. 99% of life is showing up. It's guys who are lazy and want to fuck around and go out with their girlfriends and not do sets. Okay, fine, do that. But I sacrificed my social life for a long time. You know, now I kind of live a little bit more just so I'm not feasting on myself because otherwise you have nothing to talk about. You have only what, you know, how many prostitute or tranny stories, you know, there's only so many things you can talk about that are before it becomes horribly redundant. So I try to at least live a more of a normal life now. So I have more experiences. You know, you just reminded me of something that I did horribly wrong with you. I, God. Jim, it's like it was Christmas time, and I knew what you were going through as a sex addict. You talked about it all the time, talked about going to Central Park and experiences sometimes with Rich Voss. Oh, yeah, with a girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just being rich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to clarify that. <laughs> and um, I was just... You know, I was a young manager in the business, but also socially, I wasn't, I just didn't have an understanding of how it was possible to be a guy who was doing lines in the back or smoking a bag of weed a day or fucking prostitutes. I just, all I knew is what somebody was going through, and I didn't understand that it was a, a negative. I just thought it was a part of your personality, and it was something that made you happy. And so I remember this Christmas, I went out to one of those stores on 42nd Street, and I bought you three VHS X-rated porno videos. And I wrapped them up in a brown bag and I had them at the club. And as I was about to leave, you said, this is the Boston Comedy Club on West 3rd Street that I ran. You said, listen, I have my car with me. I'll, I'll drive you up to your place. And I lived at uh, 66 right? or 67th Street, Lincoln Towers. <clears throat> and we pull up to the awning and I pull out of my backpack this beige package and I say I have something for you I hope you like it and you open it up and they were porno videos now keep in mind I've never shared a porno video with any man in my life I've never talked about buying a porno video with anybody in my life it was a moment between you and I where I gave you these things and true to form you were so gracious and you were so wonderful and thanked me so much. But the instinct person that I am and when I looked on your face a certain way, I realized it was like giving a heroin addict a needle. And I felt like I, so many different ways I could have shown you how much I loved you at Christmas time. And 
I gave the alcoholic a case of beer. But, but, and I have to say this, it's okay because when someone's in the throes of alcoholism and you just, you, and you put a case of beer in front of them, that isn't what set them off. And it's not like they were sober for a long time and you gave them a case of beer and they relapsed on the case of beer. Those three porno tapes, if it wasn't them, who knows, you may have saved me from going to a place where I would have stood up and jerked off in a booth and then gotten stabbed on the way out. So you'll never know how those three movies may have actually saved me from a worse experience. I may have just went home and whacked off instead of getting a prostitute that night who might have sliced my face with something or given me something. So, you know, it's okay. I'm sure I enjoyed them. I'm sure you did too. I'm going to spend uh, five minutes on what you're going through sure. with Opie and Anthony now. My feeling always is, is that don't write anything anywhere. Don't say anything to anyone that you wouldn't say to the queen or else you're in trouble in this day and age. And, uh, and the fact that certain people, and you look at the thing that happened in Boston with Aaron Andrews, the uh, DJ who... Yep. We call said it all those, yeah, so those horrible things, and then he had an opportunity to apologize, and he just didn't apologize the right way. And Anthony said he has nothing to apologize about or whatever. And the fact is, is that horrible things can happen to you in life, but you don't have to write about them or say them or spread them to your audience. You can keep it inside yourself and like you said earlier on this bad thing has happened to you with this sketch thing and whatever and you want to you want to express it but you're going to express it to the people privately who you trust in your life and i feel like as an artist you have to be careful you know when jason biggs tweets out you know the frequent flyer miles on malaysia air i guess i'm gonna it's like you're you're a grown-up you know yeah say it to your friend who gets the joke but don't say it to uh 1.6 million people but the fact that people like i have mixed feelings about that because like the the key what anthony did was i i don't see anything wrong with saying this stuff but the my problem is with the people who want you penalized for saying it because i don't want anybody penalized for saying something that i don't like and I, Anthony's a really smart guy. And in that moment, I think he was just very angry. And he said a lot of things that if he was saying them in natural speech and it was in a discussion, it'd be real easy to justify anything you say. But email does not reflect tone. No, text, those were exactly those text, were tweets. The text does not reflect tone. Each text. And I said this during the, the keynote speech. East text has to be like a film, a beginning, middle, and end. It can't require explanation because no one's going to get explanation when they read a tweet. So you, each tweet has got to stand alone on its own. Um, you know, but like with that, with the thing that we talked about with Vice, um, you know, the difference between me and Ant is that I just had a little bit more time to reflect on it. So I didn't keep it to myself. I talked to you Wait, about I'm it. I'm going to go toe to toe with you. Sure. Come on. Jim, what do you mean you had a little more time to reflect? 
every human has as much time as they want to reflect. Nobody forced him to his phone to press the buttons. I don't mean I should say, I don't mean I had time by the universe's standards, but I took more time to reflect or whatever it was, or there was more time between when I finally no, talked about you it. you took more time to reflect. You took more time to reflect. Yeah, I did. Anthony did not take time to reflect. However, had it been, had I been assaulted, I might not have taken the time I took. Um, he was reacting to a different thing than I was reacting to as well. And again, horrible what happened to him. And again, if Anthony is listening to this, which I, I don't know if he ever would, I have, I have no issue with what happened to him being horrible. It's, it's just awful. The issue I have as a, as, a, as a grown man in this business or woman, you know what can happen when you say things. You know, everybody knows, anybody will tell you, if you're angry, don't just take a moment. Just, yeah. just, just compose yourself. Take a day. Take a, take a little bit of time. Don't make that phone call to the person right away when right. you're in a rage. No one knows that more than you. Sure. You got you to gotta step back. They teach me in being sober, restraint of tongue and pen. And so one of the things that I think that, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, because I, I, I want your audience to know how you feel, but I also want your audience to know how you feel as an artist, knowing like Colin Quinn did, one day he's there with his friend and the next day Norm McDonald's gone mm -hmm. yet he has a paycheck and he keeps going to work now as you know you all have choices Colin Quinn had a choice at that stage of the game do I take the gig or do they say to Lorne you know what Lorne fuck it I don't agree with what you did and I'm not taking this gig Tom Cruise in the movie Taps was an extra. His friend who got him the extra job had some speaking roles. Minor part of speaking roles. He got fired on the third day. The director came up to him and said, listen, uh, I'm going to let go of that guy. He's like, that's my friend. Uh, well, he's gone. I want you to play that part. And Tom Cruise said, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can play that part. I, I don't want him to be fired. He said, look, kid, you want this role? Take it. If you don't want it, I'm going to find somebody else. And he took it. Tough decisions. Sure. Colin Quinn, he did, if he, if he had all the money in the world and the health of his family and himself, he might have stood up to Lauren and said, you know what, I'll make it on my own. Like Dave Chappelle stood up to Comedy Central and said, you know, your $50 million check, stick it where the sun don't shine. I'm out of here. I'm going to be bigger than the show. So you as an artist with Opie are under contract. But you also, there's a lot of people have been under contract who can take certain stands about things if they want to. And what's going through your mind in that, that regard, and how do you feel about the whole situation as it relates not just to Anthony right. and the world, but to you and, and Opie and how you feel gut-wise you want to handle it? Well, it's one of those things we have three months left. So it's not a long time, and I know Opie very well for a very long time, so I'm comfortable with him. Um, we both know 
this situation is not what we want. Um, I don't think he should have been fired. I do not think so because it didn't occur at work. And again, the narrative of the press, they took what he said. What he said was more important than the fact that he was assaulted. That to me was the interesting part. They didn't harp on the fact, and I'm giving you this, this for a reason, because it goes into how I feel in my gut. They, the press didn't harp on the fact that Anthony didn't punch this woman back. He's, an, he's a licensed pistol carry, to carry in New York. Uh, a couple other guys came around while he was, you know, and they were like, you know, don't touch that woman. But he knew his life wasn't being threatened. He didn't draw his pistol. He didn't reference that he had a pistol. He handled it physically right. He just blocked the woman punching him. That was all he did. And then he went home. He didn't knock her teeth out. He didn't hit her with his fucking gun. Physically, he did everything right. He said something really stupid uh, on, on Twitter in a row. But the press chooses to focus on the fact that what he said was naughty and not the fact that he was assaulted and behaved properly. So in my gut, I feel that he shouldn't have been fired. If he had just done that for no reason, uh, it'd be a harder one to have anything good to say about. But knowing what happened before that goes into my gut and says they should have taken that into a much heavier account. So I know I have to continue working. And... Um, it's not a dilemma for me. I'm not going to break a contract. And Anthony wouldn't expect me to. I talked to him. He's like, you guys got to work. He knows that. He's not an idiot. Um, will we carry on? I don't know. But there's a huge, because, you know, people who agree with Anthony or disagree with him or love him or hate him, he's a comic genius. And, and the, the, to work with somebody, Patrice said about Anthony. Patrice O'Neill. Patrice O'Neill said nobody that he had ever met could access funny faster than Anthony. Nobody about anything, you know, you could be talking about a fucking carburetor and Anthony could just get into it and be funny and be captivating. It's a gift. And, uh, that's a big hole to fill an opening night. Yeah. But this is the power of no. So when your contract ends, you and Opie have a choice. Sure. The choice is you guys want us back. Anthony's back. If you don't want him back, then we're not back. Unless you don't want to lose that foothold that you have. And that's the tough part that you guys are going to have to weigh as artists. Yeah. And as people with bills to pay. That's what I'm saying. But I also, you know what? I know Opie and Anthony, the fact that they made it, we made it 10 years on satellite. I knew this is a volatile radio show. My apartment's been paid off since 2008 or nine. I got a condo and I paid it to the principal obsessively because I knew we were going to get fired someday. I didn't think it would take this long. <laughs> I didn't see it happening on Twitter. But you don't work on the Opie and Anthony show and go like, here's a gig that I'll be 80 when I'm doing. You know it's going to go away. So financially, I'm not really scared of anything because uh -huh. I own my place. There's nothing they can take from me. I'm fine. All right. Let's ride off in the sunset with a few different questions sure. here. Tell me three comedians that you respect and think have a big future that many people don't know about john mulaney um who a lot of people are getting to know uh you know you know him and people in the business know him uh I, i've been a fan of for a while i think mulaney is going to be huge and i think he's a great comic got a new show coming out on fox yes. oh he does okay yeah mulaney is one of the first ones i would think i wish you would ask me this two years ago so i could have said amy but everyone kind of knows amy, amy schumer yeah well of course but she's she's beyond that now so I'm trying to think of two more comedians. Kurt Metzger uh, is a guy that a lot of people know as a writer, 
But I don't know if they know how funny a stand-up Kurt Metzger is. Uh, remarkably unpleasant to look at. Um, <laughs> he's an incredibly funny guy. Yeah, but a brilliant comedian. But he looks like Schwarzenegger when he was on Mars in Total Recall <laughs> and his face was being exposed. He's a bug-eyed creep, but he's brilliant. And uh, Jesse Joyce is a great, great comic writer. He's a uh, He writes for a lot of comedians. I've had him write for me, wrote for Geraldo. Um, writes for himself, obviously. He's a stand-up. And a uh, very underrated guy, Jesse. Uh, we're lucky that he writes for the rest of us because if he didn't, he would be using all that. But you know what I mean? It's like he makes a great living writing. But Jesse Joyce, Kurt Metzger, and um, I would say uh, I wanted to, I would say Chelsea Peretti too. But you know she's already on Brooklyn Nine Nine, and she's going. You know people really know who Chelsea is now. But I thought for many years that Chelsea Peretti was one of the funniest. Uh, uh, comics in the business and just naturally funny as people. Um, so I'm happy to see her get a gig too. Because Chelsea's truly brilliant. A little quick word association, a few words. I'm just okay. going to mention anybody and you go for it, okay? Mm -hmm. Richard Pryor. The greatest. Wish I had a better answer. Uh, he changed my life. Louis C.K. Brilliant. I mean, and also a good friend and uh, a great explainer of things. Uh, I see Louis as a guy who uh, I look at as a mentor in a way because I went through an experience with him at HBO and I watched how you do things and I watched how you get things done and how you navigate that type of stuff and still remain true to yourself. Rick Shapiro. <sighs> I wanted to say brilliant again, but I just said that for Louie. Rick Shapiro, I would say unique if I had to say a word with Shapiro, it would be unique because he's really obviously a very intense and very intelligent and a very funny guy. Uh, but he's also truly unafraid of doing what he does on stage. Like he's a guy that's never going to go on stage and pretend to be who he's not. So uh, unique would probably be the first thing I put to Rick Shapiro. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, unfamiliar. I know Jimmy Kimmel casually. I've done his show once. He's been nice to me when I've met him but I don't know him well enough or watch any late night television. I'll tell you what I like about Kimmel is that him and Fallon are brilliant with the net. Like they both understand how to take this new technology better than Jay knew, better than Letterman knows, better than Craig Ferguson. These guys know how to take new technology and translate it to younger people. Jay Leno. Jay Leno, uh, a friend. Uh, Jay, I call him a friend because he gave me a tremendous amount of, of work on The Tonight Show. And he was another guy who I went to when I had dilemmas because Jay navigated a brutal landscape, uh, keeping everything close to the vest. He didn't go on air and explode like I would have. I don't know what he felt internally, but he was a guy that when I had something going on and I was mad at other comedians for some reason. And Jay is the one who goes, ah, you know, you, you just got to think, what would you do? It's not a team sport. We're individuals. And that's why they don't want to do this thing with you. Like he actually under explained to me why the other comedians were right. And I was being annoyed at them. And he was right. And I knew he was right. So Jay was a guy who I would always go to. And I always hated the rap that other comedians gave him because he treats us well or he treated us well. He was the guy that fucking came into the dressing room and talked to you. Other guys didn't do that. Jay was the one that would come in and go, hey, man, you're going to have a great set. It's going to be a lot of fun. Of all the comedians, Jay was the one that showed the most love. So I love Leno. I do, too. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Hmm. Lucky Louie getting canceled was the biggest disappointment. In hindsight, it's good for Louie because he's got his show. 
But I felt with that show, we had something that was original and funny and we had a fan base. Um, so that was my biggest disappointment, I would have to say. And again, you were a great actor on that and you are a great actor. And I, my, my biggest thing when you say that, my, bis, my biggest disappointment when I sit across from you is that I know you're an extraordinary dramatic and comedic actor and I wish that maybe that was a part of your life that you focused on and worked as hard at in getting as you do your stand-up because you are so good when you're acting. Oh, thank you. Uh, your proudest moment professionally. <sighs> proudest moment professionally. Probably my first hour special on HBO because that to me said I had made it not necessarily as a celebrity or household name or any of that nonsense, but as a comedian, an HBO one hour special meant something. And I knew the fact that I was doing that meant something. So I would have to say that, uh, I've shot specials since then that I like more, but that was to me the proudest I've ever been was after I shot that special. Awesome. Last question. Knowing that you executive produce your specials and you probably executive produce the Vice show and work on everything, you know, now as a producer and also as an artist, what advice do you have for the young artist that's growing up in a small town and lost their way or somebody trying to make it to the next point or fighting their vices to try to get to the next level that you've gotten at as a performer. And there's so many people here at the festival and you see, and you walk around, you see these people with so much hope, but you know that, you know, it takes a special journey to get there. So what would you say to those people? Don't be lazy. First and foremost, uh, there's nothing worse than a lazy performer. You have to be there. Always work at it. And uh, don't self-sabotage. That's the temptation, too, is because we're afraid, and I don't want to be realized as a fraud that I want to run away and hide. So I look for things to go wrong so I can run away and hide because that removes the risk of failing. So don't self-destruct. Like with this thing we spoke about earlier, I didn't self-destruct. I really did think it through. Anytime you go through something that's annoying, you think it through. You, 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 you get annoyed. But I didn't self-destruct. I didn't call the executive and yell at him. I thought about it. I talked it over with my manager. I actually talked it through with you and you made uh, good sense. And then I made sense to myself when I talked about it. And I'm like, fuck, this guy is looking out for me. He's not a dick. Like, think things through before you open your big fucking mouth. It doesn't mean you're not being true to yourself because you actually act like a professional and not a petulant child. So don't be lazy and don't self-destruct. Awesome. Jim, um, I... I love you. I think Thank you're you. I love a, you, Barry. an amazing man. And I just, uh, I get emotional when I see you because you're a big, big part of my life. And, uh, and, uh, to see you do so well, it just, it, it makes me so, so happy and thank I'm you. so grateful. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Thanks very much. And again, I'd like to thank my first sponsor ever, Global Cash Card for free paperless payroll, saving your company thousands of dollars at globalcashcard.com. All right, and as always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. 
They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.